0: It's so good to see you all. I'm really excited for this AMA with David. And these are really meant for the product-led sales community to ask all of your burning questions on product-led sales to the experts like David, who have been doing this for for years and so many exciting things to learn. If you have questions, put it in the chat, raise your hand, or just start speaking and we will answer. Um, So quick, I'm going to introduce David and then hand it over to you. I'm going to ask some questions and then we'll open it up to everyone else. So, um, David, you've had an awesome run at HubSpot, which it seems like eight and a half years. Um, And I think you're the only person I know that has switched from sales to product to another product role, then back to sales. So having really awesome experience there at HubSpot, which is, in my eyes, one of the OG product-led sales organization. So really excited um, to chat with you today. I know we discussed some topics around like what even is product-led sales? Do you have to be PLG and enterprise? Is there somewhere you can be in the middle? Like how the hell you went from product to sales and back? That's not the normal career path. So lots sure. of things to chat about. But before diving in, um would love to hear your, uh, your introduction and um, we can dive right in.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll go quickly, and thanks for that. And uh, it's nice to virtually meet everybody. Uh, I'm excited to uh, to go through this in the next like 40 minutes. So, yeah, my background's aty- atypical. Um, I actually started my career selling pharmaceuticals as an outside salesperson, so like literally cold calling in person. That company got shut down by the FBI and DEA, uh, like 10 months after I started working there. So it's not on my LinkedIn actually for legal reasons. Uh, I had to retain a lawyer. I was deposed by the FBI. I did not do anything. I had no idea what was going on or I was 21. Um, so long time ago. Um, but I always had a passion for tech. And so I realized like, okay, this pharmaceutical thing, not for me. Um, and so I went and co-founded essentially an agency. So I was a product manager, project manager, and we built uh, shitty websites and mobile apps at the time. Uh, some of those websites that I built in 2013 are actually still live in the same capacity they were then. Um, and so that really gave me uh, insight on like how to build software, how to work with engineers, I went and joined another small tech company in Boston, SmartBear, did a bunch of different kind of salesy jobs there and then got recruited to come to HubSpot to be the first salesperson selling our free CRM. Um, So that was 2014. And we were kind of figuring out like, what's freemium? Um, At the time there was no PLG. We just considered it freemium. Uh, That ended up working as like we know now. Uh, And yeah, I transitioned over to product. And I think the story there is really like, I follow the problem and the strategic priorities of the business. And that's where, like, to me, the cool work happens. Um, so I'm, I'm much more of like a small project, small company, building, going fast person. And that's really the only reason I think I'm still at HubSpot today is because I've been afforded the right to basically every two years or so move on to the next thing. And so the move from sales to product was really about chasing the problem and really the excitement of building Um, And then within product, I held a few different roles across a few different products, but most of those were like fully zero to one. So taking something from concept stage to, um, you know, 20, 30 million in ARR with us, like each time you launch a new product, it does better because our install base is much bigger, right? It's like a lot easier to... get to 50 million in ARR when you have a $1.5 billion install base than it is when you have a 200 million install base, right? And so as you learn and as you launch more products, things get easier. And then, yeah, I moved back to sales um, because we were building a new sales team that was going to be focused on selling the products that I just spent five years working on and launching. Um, so that's that's where we're at.
0: That's awesome. I, uh, I, re- I wonder if the fact that you have both sales and product experience has driven you to that product-led sales interest of just being able to see both the self-serve growth and then the sales-led growth and where you can fit in between. Um, something before diving in that I thought was really interesting that we talked about was often there's broken feedback loops from sales to product and then product back to sales because sales yes. hear something from a customer and then they want to deliver it to product. And in I think product-led sales and in a world where you have a PLG product, but you're also selling to customers, um, that's like... So important to really have tight feedback loops there. Curious if you have any recs or tips, uh, given you've been in both of those roles.
1: Yeah. I mean, in this motion, like, um, you know, like the term smart marketing has been around for forever. And I hope that sales and marketing in every company work together very well because it's important. But in this motion, certainly product is a pillar there that needs to be involved. I don't have a good, like, name for whatever product and sales is together. Um, But yeah, I I think um, after spending time on the product side and seeing how salespeople generally interact with product, I think there's like one big flaw, which is salespeople come to product with a solution. And that is actually distinctly the job of a product team and a product manager is to create the solution. And so I've always suggested to sales teams that are in this motion or trying to interface with product, your job is to actually clearly articulate and concisely articulate the problem. And so the way that I've historically done this in sales, it's like, okay, I think I'm seeing something like we need a feature or there's a new theme popping up with customers and we don't have a solution. It's losing us deals. I basically create a Google sheet that's like, here are all my recorded conversations. Here's a brief kind of like link to DRM, how much money we, we left on the table because we didn't have this. Um, and then just like a blurb about the customer conversation and highlighting the problem. And then I hand that back to the product manager or the person leading that initiative. And so it's basically doing all of the legwork that they would need to do to understand the problem, giving them everything that they need to make a decision and figure out what the actual solution is. And Alexa, we talked about this, but like, I think I've heard salespeople be like, Oh, we just need this button. And like, if we had this one button and you're like, yeah, okay, I got it. Like that button, but what is the actual problem the customer's trying to solve? And oftentimes the problem is much bigger and whatever that job to be done is much more complex than just adding a button. And like, it's like the Henry Ford, like, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have set a faster horse. And I think that actually is very true in this world. Um, And sometimes it could be a button and that's important and easy. And so like, that could be the solution but that's not your job as a sales team or a go-to-market team. The job is the problem and articulating the problem clearly and concisely.
0: I love it. So you're saying you don't just write like one line in the product feedback field in HubSpot and then hope that magically the button appears?
1: No, no, that's not. We actually, uh, some insider scoop, we actually have an internal tool that we call the PIT, which is the product idea tracker. And so we allow our reps to actually do this in HubSpot where they fill out on the deal record like the problem, and then we get to pull in all the data about the customer. And every month, there's basically a readout that says, here's the part of the product, here's the feature, and here's exactly how much revenue we lost, or or weren't able to close because of it. Um, and so it gives you kind of like this really nice analytical view of the product problem that's stopping us from, from getting there. But that being said, There's things that have been on that list for six or seven years that we haven't built because it's not a strategic priority for the business, or it's not for an ICP that we're focused Mm -hmm. on. And so salespeople can ask, they can press the button, they can fill out the pit, we can see the report, but again, up to product to decide what, what we need to build.
0: That's awesome. Tal says, where did you build that in
1: HubSpot? Not standard features. So we have a team of like close to 50 engineers that just builds the HubSpot instance of HubSpot. For a variety of reasons, but mostly like we're not our own target customer, right? We have to run on HubSpot because we are HubSpot, but, you know, we have 1,700 reps globally across 15 segments in 14 languages. Uh, So our HubSpot instance, the one that we use, does not look anything like the HubSpot instance that the majority of our customers use.
0: Well, very cool. So you're dogfooding to another level. That's, that's awesome.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I love that. Um, Switching gears a little back from going from product and sales to um, this concept of what you and I were talking about of PLG as a strategy. So I oftentimes see a lot of LinkedIn or Twitter posts that like, what is our strategy? Our strategy is PLG. And I know that that makes you cringe and want to like scream um, so why don't we why don't we talk about that PLG is a strategy or enterprise sales is a strategy. What what's wrong with that?
1: Um, it's like too micro looking. Like that is not a business strategy. The way you go to market is just simply thinking about a distribution channel or distribution engine. Like PLG is one way to distribute the value of your company. Enterprise sales is one way to distribute it. So yeah, I think it's become pretty hot like saying, oh, we're like PLG and that's how we're going to differentiate. It's like, okay, so but that's like how you're going to acquire customers and they're going to get value because PLG is really just, to me, a customer prospect experiencing value for the first time through something other than a cold call, email, LinkedIn message or content on your website. And that can be like a free product that you have or it can be a freemium version of the product you sell. Um, But yeah, it's just like, to me, Just an acquisition channel, it's a way to distribute um, and go to market. It's not a company-level strategy.
0: How did the acquisition um, channels and the different types of strategies evolve at HubSpot throughout your time there?
1: Yeah, so it was really interesting, right? Because traditionally, HubSpot, um, and I'm talking like 2008 when it was founded through pretty much 2016, was traditional content-led inbound marketing we build a bunch of content people come in we call them we're like why were you interested in downloading this white paper or that pdf that's a really good one like can i tell you more about how we can help um and our shift to freemium was actually over like two and a half years when we started uh the, the CRM business. And that was really a skunk works project. Like literally we were in the basement of the HubSpot headquarters in Cambridge. It was the entire team, like 20 of us across product engineering, marketing, sales, service. Um, and that's when we really started experimenting with like Facebook ads and acquisition through paid uh, in the early days. And I remember we hired someone he's still at HubSpot um, just like one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, to do our paid acquisition strategy and he used to work for like a supplement company making ads and like that is a very heavy like a b testing using paid to drive traffic and the psychology around it and then brian balfour who uh, left to run reforge was our like director of growth marketing on that team um i think over time we have evolved to say content's still important um like i think you should always build content. You should always rank for keywords. Like there are things that we've been ranking for for 15 years and our domain authority is super strong. And so we have the ability anytime we launch something new to basically dominate search listings because of the domain authority. So I think that's something you should do. Um, Paid, we kind of bounce back and forth with. I think for us, we think about in paid acquisition because we're a platform, we're not thinking about like, let's acquire a full stack front office customer. We're like best free meetings tool or like best email sequence tool, right? So it's like the micro version of, of what we're doing and hopefully add value that way. And then we do a bunch of outbound. Like we have a big BDR team that's doing a bunch of outbound. I think this is a misnomer because we've been the inbound marketing company for so long. Uh, we've always had a BDR team. Like we've, we've always done outbound. I think to grow a successful business, you need, in my perspective is you need both, right? Like you need Inbound leads through content, you should probably be doing paid. I think you should have some sort of free offering, whether that's your free product or another version of that, which we can can talk about, Um, and then outbound. And just like PLG is a distribution strategy, I think a lot of outbound and BDRing type activity is, is actually just an awareness campaign, right? It's like people just seeing your logo and the name of your company over and over again through LinkedIn messages, through email, you can make it really effective um, and it can be really effective, but more so it's just, it's an awareness campaign. It's like a billboard in a way. Um, It just happens to be in someone's inbox or LinkedIn.
0: Very interesting. So it sounds like you went from starting out with content, then you launched a freemium version of the product and had, and put more effort into your product led motion, but then you also um, layered on sales on top later. So you have kind of all of these different motions going at once Um, Something I would say, it sounds like there was an evolution though. It wasn't like, we're going to start early days HubSpot and we're going to do everything at once. It seemed like it was, how did you figure out, you know, which, I mean, let's just call it acquisition channel or strategy or whatever we want to call it, which distribution method to do next before getting all the way here where you have a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is like the journey of all kind of small businesses and startups where it's like, you want to get to a point where you have one repeatable acquisition channel, like around like pre-seed or series A. And then it's like, okay, let's run at that really hard and optimize it. And then eventually you have diminishing returns and then you layer on the next one and the next one. That That was literally our journey, right? It's like, I think now we're on community right? Like I think community is, and you all know this well at Pocus, right? Like this is kind of the next frontier, especially in a way that makes it valuable. I could spend an hour talking about uh, communities that exist for salespeople and my dislike for a lot of them because there's not actually a lot of value for the user. Um, and there's a lot of spam and it's like, ugh, you jump in, you're like, I don't like this. Um, but it's been through experimentation and, and clear goals, right? So yeah. it's like, what are we going to do next like strategy wise? So what are we, what do we want to accomplish in the next three to five years of HubSpot? What are the products and personas we want to focus on? And then where are they and how do we get to them? And then how do we add value to them through that? Um, I think sometimes that's paid. Sometimes that's content. Increasingly it's becoming community. And so how do we build a community around, you know, kind of each one of our ICPs because at this point we have a
0: bunch. Going off of that, um, we're, communities can feel spammy which I've I've seen as well and that's the thesis that we wanted to start our community around to not have a spammy audience and be yeah. and create a category of product that sales together I think with sales what tall mentioned there's a similar kind of perspective that outbound can be spammy and I mean I know for myself like I feel like I'm always just getting spam calls so how do you manage to but yeah, I think we all are. I just leave my voicemails full now so that
2: like, I don't have to deal with it.
0: Um, yeah. But how do you manage to differentiate yourself, um, whether it's in community or in outbound? Um, those are probably two different
1: questions. Yeah. Um, so let's tackle the outbound question first. Tal, I'm just reading your message. Um, totally, totally true. I think there's like two philosophies of doing outbound. One is like inherently gross and bad. And one is like, okay. And I think you're trying to get to okay. And gross and bad is like just the blanket messages. I'm sure you all get on LinkedIn. That's like, Hey, we do this, grab 15 minutes with me next week. And you're like, I don't, one, I don't even understand the words that you just said to me. I don't even know how I ended up here. And the other one is like starting to think about outbound is like engaging with your buyers where they are. And so this is where it actually bleeds over to community, right? Like, I think the folks that do this really well are like, on LinkedIn and, or wherever their buyers are, and they're adding value to the community and they're growing their presence that way. And then when you reach out, like hyper-targeted messaging, right? I think it's okay to have a cold call or a cold email that someone doesn't read as long as it's like good. And so I'm pretty allergic to like make 500 calls this week or like send a thousand sequences in a month. I think there's a quality bar that you want to achieve and it's up to you as kind of a leader to decide like how you want to run that part of the business on the community side. I had a deep conversation actually with someone building a community in sales uh, last week. I don't know. I I think there's like this, like there's an incentive problem in a lot of these, which is like people are building a community because it's a way for them to make money and engage, but they're not thinking about what is the value the individual person is achieving. And then I don't think there's a lot of good, software right now. I think this is actually a big opportunity. If anyone's like looking for a business to build, it's like, how do you actually moderate outside of like how Reddit does it or any of these other kind of communities to basically give people access in to engage in a conversation. So the way I view it is like, you could have viewers, people who are in, but in order to actually engage, there needs to be something there that you have done to prove value. And then moderation, which is like, if you do something bad, you're gone. And like, what I've just described is, I think a business. And so, um, (laughs) yeah, if someone wants to build that, uh, I'd happily invest. Um, So yeah, I I think it's like, what is the bar and moral code and level that you want to live up to when you do outbound or when you do community? And I think people naturally have this like BS detector, which is like, I know when this is the same email that a 1000 people have gotten, or I'm in a community and it's like, there's no value for the person joining the community like n plus one zero value it's like create the biggest community we can because like that's how we monetize it that's that's not going to work long term
3: Hmm.
0: kyle i'm curious if you want to expand on that or if that's a question or just a comment
1: (laughs) yeah
3: it's definitely more of a comment but um as you know, Alexa, I was uh, formerly working at Common Room, so community community uh, company. Uh, we built a community data tool, which is really fascinating, but I spent a lot of my time there as a community architect. So I spent a lot of time talking with people, consulting with folks, and can't name specific companies, but they range anywhere from just getting funding a few million bucks to billions of dollars. And I just wanted to make it clear you know, based on what I'm hearing here from David, um, I also took note that many companies are like, hey, how do we get this thing to be massive? Let's get a 1,000 people. Let's get 10,000 people. And then it turns out that they do become spammy or there really isn't truly a lot of value that exists there. And when I say taking the time to consider value proposition, I come from more of a design background. So I've actually encouraged a lot of these folks that are driving these teams to really consider taking a design approach, like do the research, learn about who you're serving and consider it just like your business value proposition, right? It has to be differentiated. It has to stand out. Can you do that in the community and in your own unique way? Because you're also competing with people's attention. You're competing against their free time, their hobbies, their family, because oftentimes they're either doing this in parallel with their work schedule or after work. Um, so that's why I brought that up. I thought it was really interesting that we're in alignment there, David.
1: Yeah. And and I also think there's a thread to be pulled that's kind of like a Venn diagram with PLG, which is like, does your buyer or in a community sense the user and in software sense, like the actual prospect or person buying actually want to engage in this way? And so I think there's... Um, the sales community is hard because I don't know that there's like a really, really great example um, that's like scaled massively where it doesn't turn into spam, but like I'm in a bunch of uh, operations communities. So there's one called the wizard of ops um, run by the folks at Sonar, unbelievable community, like rich conversation, so much value. And I have to wonder, like, is that just a persona thing? And it's like, is that why some of the most successful PLG companies are dev tools? You know, like I think about Mm NGROC and and companies like that, who just like massive explosive growth, because that's the persona. And then companies that have tried it in sales, you're like, well, that's not necessarily how all salespeople buy. And so you then are thinking about like, Alexa, we talked about like, okay, now you have this sales motion and this product led motion and doing both is very difficult. And uh, I think like, I'm just going to go out and say it being an enterprise sales company is okay. Like I think we as a community have become like, oh, it has to be PLG or this thing will never scale. And it's like, I don't know. Like, it takes a lot of cash to build a really legitimate PLG motion, um, an acquisition motion around that. But like B two B sales still works, and so you can still do it the traditional way. I think it's the same thing. Um, totally. Um, oh, go ahead. No, I was just I was just uh, looking through the questions.
0: Yeah. Do you want to just start going through there? It looks like Gerard had a question and then we can go to Kate. We can go down the list.
1: Yeah. Sorry. I just got to scroll up and make this bigger. Uh,
0: He said, do you run experiments to identify which acquisition channel to fully invest in?
1: Yeah, for sure. So this is like a a simple like LTV to CAC that we calculate, which is like, okay, we put a dollar in how much comes out of the machine and we have a bar depending on um, the strategic goals of like how many dollars we want to get out. And so we would allocate, like if we had a whole pie of budget, we'd say, okay, this experiment gets $2, this one gets $3, this one gets $5 out of 10, that's not 10, Um, but you know what I mean? And then we let them run for two months, three months, and, and we see, and then we kill anything that doesn't raise the bar. So we've like not done acquisitions for, so for example, when I was working on Service Hub, like our Zendesk kind of competitor, we didn't run any paid ads because we looked at the space and we were like, return on ad spend here is abysmal because Zendesk bids everything up. And you're like, okay, cool. That's not how we're going to acquire because the business says this doesn't match the value we need to return for every dollar. And so we look at it just like you'd look at any other um, kind of business investment. Um, what have been the most successful strategies for driving customer attention? Caitlin, do you mean like after someone has purchased? So like
2: yeah, or Yeah, let me give it a little bit more context. I work in yeah, the yeah, please. generative AI space. Um cool. and obviously in the last 2 months <laughs> there were like 5,000 companies last year and in the last in the first 2 months of this year there's like 20,000 already, right? Yeah. Um so luckily we've gotten a pretty good head start. We have about 6 million users right now. Um which is phenomenal, but I think something that all of the generative AI companies are struggling with is retention. Um, and I'm a through and through PLG, you know, hoorah, I get it. I think it's valuable. Like, I love the idea of selling on value rather than selling on if you could sell the objects or not. But um, yeah, yeah. I think with all of our users that we have, our retention is so low. Um, and I know that it's a problem that is faced across a lot of PLG companies and potentially one of the downfalls of product-led growth. Um, So what are the strategies that you've seen work really well within a PLG model that help customer retention?
1: When I typically, and this is not like a slight against you or your company. And like, I think there's a lot of nuance in this question. So like, I'd be happy to chat kind of one-to-one to ask a bunch more questions before I give a blanket answer. Typically, there's just not enough value being provided to the user. Like that is the key to everything is consistent value and then expansion of that value over time. So it's like they might come to you to do one thing, especially in generative AI, but like knowing what what is the next thing that they're going to want to do or the next job that they're going to need to accomplish. And how do you surface that to them in a relevant way in the product so that they can experience that? after they've gotten that first initial value in the thing that they came to you for. So I think it's nuanced, but especially in your space, that is going to be key because yeah, like I think we've all seen it. It's every, it's everywhere right now. And I think there's going to need to be a bunch of differentiation happening. And I think that's going to be the extension of of use cases and value and stacking those on top of each other for whatever uh, persona you're, you're trying to solve for. Um where are we in the chat? Um uh,
0: Rakita? Oh, that there was a that was more of a statement of the community. Totally what like- about Harry? Um, have you run any exper- interesting sales-led bottom-up experiments or plays to increase velocity or ACV
1: or boost close rate? Um uh, yeah, I mean, I think you can make a list for, for all of these. Um, I might speak just from my HubSpot experience, which is like, we have realized that building more products and having a second, third, fourth SKU, it's like, I don't want to call it easy, but it is a really efficient way to drive revenue and increase ACVs because you start building these things out and then you create a bundle of these things, these products, and then you can command a marginally higher price than whatever your single SKU is and... The economic buyer is thinking like, oh, for only a little bit more, I can get all of this. And so you've created this delta and spread between a single SKU and a bundled multiple SKU. And then you create almost infinite levels of cross-selling and upselling through that over time into your install base. And that that grows really nicely. Um, Increasing velocity, it's like, look at what you're, you're, if you're talking about from the sales perspective, look at what salespeople are doing. Like... I'm sure you can automate most of it. Um, This will be, I don't know, probably boring now, but in 2015, when we were doing freemium CRM, we had so many signups and basically reps would get PQL email in their inbox, then they'd research the company. And then we'd be like, okay, now I have to send an email and try to book time with this person because we wanted to talk to them if they were uh, in the segment that we applied humans to. And we realized like, hey, we can just like send an automated email from HubSpot with the rep's calendar link in it. And the day, I remember the day that we started doing that, each rep had 12 half hour meetings a day for three weeks on their calendar. Like we were catering breakfast, lunch, and dinner to the office. It was wild, but that was just an example of like, sit down with whoever is talking to these customers or reaching out to these leads and just look at what they're doing when they're engaging I guarantee there's efficiencies in there that you could build with process automation and systems. And that's basically what we've been doing for eight years. It's like, where can we just make this whole thing more efficient so that either the customer is getting all the information they need in product and buying touchlessly um, or humanless, or they're getting with a salesperson as soon as they can. And then you, to take it one step further, we have like a sales team, but then we also have an inbound sales team, which is like chat, quick 15 minute conversations, for our core personas. So if someone doesn't want to fully engage in a sales process, they can still chat with someone for five minutes or get on a 15 minute Zoom to have a few questions answered and then they can buy. Um, So opening up kind of different channels to align with what a customer wants.
0: Super interesting. And before we go into other questions, I wanted to call out something that you mentioned having multiple SKUs and being able to upsell or cross sell or kind of repackage the value. Something that we talked about in our conversation before this was that, you know, we would sometimes kind of create hacky PLG products where like it might not be pure play PLG, but it's a way for people to find value um, before making the purchase decision. And I thought the website creator was a great example. And I think that ties into both being kind of in the middle of PLG and enterprise and also being another way to provide value. So I'd love if you can talk about that for a little
1: Yeah. So it goes back again to like this concept of providing value through some sort of product before, or that's, and that's the first value that a customer prospect gets. And so, yeah, we have, for those of you who don't know, we've had this tool called website grader for, I don't know, 12 years. You put in your website, we give you all of these SEO recommendations. We talk, we like go through all your backlinks and it's just like a little free piece of software. And at the bottom, it's like, Oh, did you know HubSpot can like help you do all of this stuff with our CMS tool. And so we've made a bunch of different free tools like this. Uh, Caitlin, I actually work with a generative AI company uh, in the sales tech space. And they're putting together basically like a listing page for all generative AI apps, because there are so many and people are like, well, I want to do this thing, but like, how do I find that? And so they're going to provide that for free. It's just like a landing page that basically has all the generative AI apps with their categories. And it's like powered by this company. So that is value via something that's not a PDF, white page, white, like all of that sort of stuff that we consider traditional acquisition or paid acquisition. Um, so yeah, I think there's a bunch of different things you can do here. It's also typically like an easier lift than turning your entire product if you have one today and are trying to go sales led to product <laughs> uh, into some sort of freemium offering, Um, it's a nice like jump into that space. And again, just an acquisition engine, give people value through something that's productized versus like a human.
0: Really cool example. Um, Ivana asked, um, going back to the retention topic, do you have any advice for common product usage signals that can give you clues to predict when they'll want to go take a next step? So maybe examples that you've seen work at HubSpot?
1: Yes. um, With the caveat that most of this is backed by data with what we do. Right. And so we're basically running, what we do is we run this constant regression on our top customers by spend and how quickly they added spend. And we basically do a look back in time. We're like, what's the first thing they did? What's the next thing they did to a point now where if someone buys one product from HubSpot within 98% certainty, we can guarantee the next product they will buy. And we surface that to wow. our sales team, and all of the marketing and communication they get is based on that next product. Now we have a lot of users, right, and a lot of customers, and so that becomes like fairly easy. Um, but I think you could probably just look at your customer base and be like, who upgraded the fastest? what was the first thing they did? It is literally just a regression and then run experiments trying to get people to do that thing. And that thing for us has changed a lot over time. So the first thing was like, we want them to send an email. And now we want people to create deals because we're a CRM. And so that kind of becomes our North Star activation metric. Like, And all of our product growth teams are thinking about, okay, how do we get someone to value in this way? And what is the path through the product that's most efficient to get someone to open a deal? For the first time or yep. send an email for the first time. And we craft the entire onboarding and product experience around these things. Um, we obviously have a bunch mm-hmm. of different products and a bunch of different ways to come into the products and multi-products. So it's like a kind of a web, but for a you know, single product, it's basically how I would think about it.
0: That's cool. It's So we think about things pretty similarly at Pocus where we think about it in concepts of playbooks of if yeah. someone did X thing, then send them this marketing campaign or reach out with this or um, take this action because they will likely want to do that next step. And um, it's really interesting that you have so much data that you can look back yeah. and predict with 90th percentile. Um, it is interesting. I, I do recommend for companies with lots and lots of data, that is a math problem to solve. And then earlier totally. stage companies, it's a based on what they do in the product. What do you predict would happen? That, that's super fascinating though. Um Shion asks, can you expand on why you think that PLG is not a business strategy? I get your point that it's a different way to capture, but because of the cross-functional requirements needed to do it well, I yeah. feel like a top-down strategy and emphasis doesn't hurt. Speaking from current experience, struggles.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think maybe the words that I chose to use um, were po- <laughs> were to make, make a point and perhaps not as reality-based. So like, it is a business level strategy in the sense that you really need executive team buy-in to push down this motion and make sure priorities are aligned. But it's one piece of the puzzle. It's not when, I, when I'm like, PLG isn't a business strategy. That's when I see like pitch decks from companies. That's like the way we're going to differentiate from all of our competitors is PLG. I'm like, that's not the whole story. That's like, a, cool, that's a piece but then like, what are all the other things that you're going to do to add customer value? So yeah, Cheyenne, like definitely uh, me getting excited and uh, trying to make a point more so than like, it. it is a strategy, but it's not the whole thing. I think is more my point.
0: Yeah, it's a um, good point that this, uh, I was gonna say, it's a good point that PLG, I think is, I mean, it's become a buzzword and it's become just kind of, it means everything, which means it means nothing. Um, but it is hard to have the whole organization pointed at one goal of maybe the goal is to have self-serve signups or the goal is to have the ability for customers to try a product before they buy, whatever that is. It's definitely a lot of effort to get everyone moving in the same direction, but agreed with David that now, since it's become kind of a buzzword, it's we're going to differentiate because we're PLG. It's almost everyone needs to find ways
1: to give their customers value. Um, Um, I know we don't have a ton of time left, so I might just like cruise through these questions and rapid fire. And then if if, if anybody wants to talk after, just ping me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm happy to, uh, happy to jump on with anybody one-to-one. More worthwhile leads to your sales team. I think the key here with what we found is like, you just won't know what's worthwhile um, until sales starts coming at you and being like, These leads were shit. And so, what we do is we simply put a form link at the bottom of all of our PQL emails that's like, Do you have feedback on this lead type? And that goes back to kind of like the growth team and the folks that own those emails. And if we get enough signal that, hey, this lead type no longer a thing that we should be working with sales or they don't want to see these anymore, we turn it off and then we'll add things in that they suggest. So, it's kind of an iterative motion. But yeah. I would just like ask the the sales folks or just start sending them things. Um, And then one of the things we do is when we send a PQL email in that email, there's a quick little video with exactly what someone did in the product sales copy that they can use the value prop, all the information about the company. So we take all decision-making out from the salesperson and we're basically like, here's exactly what you need to do. Here's your playbook. Now go sell. Um, For us, that makes sense because we have hundreds of, PQLs of different types. Um, We have what we call Hinkle's, which is uh, high intent, no QLs, which is like someone visits the pricing page three times in a week. That creates a lead that goes to sales. So there are a bunch that aren't like product specific that we do. Um, Okay. How's the partnership distribution channel and outbound sales work together without competing incentives? Uh, Can you define partnership distribution? I think that has a few different... Um, so I was just thinking, like, since there's so many partnerships that we make um, with our competitors, and also we are selling by ourselves, um, this sort of same people are targeting, but like the customer doesn't know who to buy from. Or... Yeah, okay, cool. So I get it. We have the same sort of friction because we have a, a huge partner distribution channel and sometimes direct reps like want to sell into it. Um, it was really messy. And we actually made a solve recently, which is like direct reps are going to sell all the all the partnership deals come through the direct rep. And we basically have a liaison person with that partner. So someone works with the partner directly, is enabling them, is giving them all the content. But when a lead comes in, our direct team is actually selling that. Um, so it was more of a structural thing to align incentives because yeah, we have this problem i think everyone's going to run into this problem so i just think about like structurally what's the easiest path because what you want as a business is to get that person to buy quickly and so we just basically said no more like dedicated person who like has to sell through this partner it's like we have a person who works with the partner and is kind of like account manager style but when a lead comes in it's all going to the same sales team so that we don't have competing incentives um Um, Okay, biggest challenge you face moving from content drive and freemium to driving? Outbound is the main customer acquisition channel. So just to clarify, Outbound is not our main uh, customer acquisition channel. It is still our freemium products and freemium acquisition. I think something like 70-plus percent of our customers started on a free tool. So it's really just a a supplement. I think the, the biggest challenge was we went the harder way, I believe, which is we went from an enterprise sales motion to a PLG motion. I think it's easier to layer in sales once you have PLG um, because you have that product culture already. It was 100% a top-down thing. Our CEO basically went to everybody in the company and said, this is how we do business now. And we thought about it as our core business wasn't acquiring our freemium business. Our freemium business was acquiring our massive business that took us to be a public company. And so that kind of mind shift. Um, and then because we did it as a Skunk Works project and we had, all, we had everything built out by the time we went live, I will say that was probably for us. It made a ton of sense because there was nothing really in the world about PLG and especially freemium CRMs. So we had to isolate that team, but we made a lot of mistakes. Like we had our own billing system. We had our own backend infrastructure. Like merging that together took three years. So the go-to markets were merged, but like you still had two different bills from HubSpot for a long time. And migrating customers off of what was Stripe onto what we use for our billing infrastructure took, took three years. So uh, I think there's ways you could have done it differently, but um, I think because the motion was so different and so undefined, there was nothing out there. We had to do it. Um, it's also a huge risk at the time. Um, and so it's better to isolate a big risk
0: um, in my opinion. I feel like this was like, I loved the bat the end, just going through every single question, yes. just powering through them. But this was awesome, David. Um, learned a ton from everything. I think we started with like product and sales interactions to PLG enterprise sales, made some great hot takes that I love that PLG is in a strategy. Uh, outbound sales is allowed. You're allowed to do it. So I feel like you're giving us all permission to, to go back to work and make some big changes in our organization. <laughs> so thank you so much, David. This was incredible. If you have more questions, uh, Ivana posted his LinkedIn a couple of messages above. And so he said he'd be happy to chat with you all on LinkedIn. So thank you again so much for coming, David. And to everyone else in the community, thank you so much for joining. Um, As always, incredible questions, incredible discussion. And I hope to see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you all.